0: Everybody, this is John Hindoff, and another RSL Network of Channels special program. It's another one of our long-form interviews, the long one, Tyler's long one, as we like to call them, because the whole concept was brought about by Graham Tyler, one of our uh, pit lane reporters from Le Mans from many years ago, who decided it would be a good idea to corral some famous people from the paddock, whether they were drivers or suppliers or team managers and sit down and find out what got them to where they are today so in the spirit of Graham we'll do another tireless long one and for that I've come to Nashville and to the home of Owen Trinkler. (music) Owen thanks for joining us and uh, allowing me into your very very beautiful home here just on the outskirts of of Nashville you're Nashville, born and bred, living here now. must be great, back in, in your roots. I'm going to take you back a little bit uh, to start with. Uh, it won't be painful. There's no hypnotism required. Um, the probing will all be intellectual and not physical, I promise. So when is the first time that you can remember being aware of, of motorsport? How far back do we have to go for that?
1: Oh, well very early age and then we're coming up on a on a race here uh in a few days at a place that means very much to me road atlanta is where my dad was racing uh, a sports racers alola uh back in those days in scca wow. back in the 70s when scca was almost you know the big IMSA you want to say maybe at the mm-hmm. time or you know led right into that um to that type of racing but I was in a crib you know probably by the tower that you're going to be announcing here no in, in, a, in a few days so this place means a lot uh you know going to road Atlanta so that that's sort of my early days and there's pictures that you know of me being around there in a crib hanging out and I remember just you know hanging out with my dad down in the garage and working on different stuff and cars and just that's what I that's all I've ever wanted to do
0: well that was going to be my next question did that influence the young Owen Trinkler then at that very impressionable you know five to ten years old age you were already around cars you picked up spanners you knew what a wrench was for that clearly got into your blood at an early stage then
1: Oh, it did. I mean, I'm so passionate about the sport and that, that just started early on. I mean, when I was, you know, one or two years old, that's, you know, my parents can say that's all that he ever wanted to do. He's just on anything, trying to race it and go fast. And <laughs> and so that it was, yeah, his influence was was everything. You know, mm-hmm. you, you want to be like your dad and understand what, you know, he's doing. And, and um, yeah, it's just that's what fuels my passion even today somewhat.
0: What was in the Trinkler garage then in those days? What was your, your mom and dad driving?
1: Well, not, nothing too fancy. I remember we had a, uh, you know, it was a situation where he was driving for a guy uh, that owned a trucking company around here in town. And so, well, I remember we were, there's pictures of pulling the car around. I want to say it was an Oldsmobile station wagon, had the wood grain on the sun. The, the green, you know, like uh, uh, Chevy Chase's movie, National yeah. Lampoon. Yeah. <laughs> it was almost that type of Station wagon pulling the the Lolo around on an open trailer, and
0: <laughs> very you know, different days. Yeah,
1: you know, completely different now from what we see, and so that 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 was you know he was driving for that guy, and so he was doing everything he could to get that car on the track and, mm. and make it work. And so uh, he was
0: engineering himself. He was mechanic. He was crew chief. He was working on the car back at home in between race meetings.
1: Oh yeah, I mean that's just how it was. It was different than it is today. But he was wrenching on the car, and he had a good background in automotive. Uh, a background and he continued down that road even when he wasn't driving later in life but that was um yeah you you did it all then didn't have a choice (laughs) no he didn't have a choice absolutely right so how was uh,
0: your school years then Um, were you diligent at school did you play sport or were you always thinking about getting home getting in the garage and helping your dad
1: you know john it's one of those things where i did a variety of things too i mean racing was always number one but I, i was as a athletic person I I probably I played every sport out there that you can think of Um, they didn't try to steer me one way or the other Mm -hmm. and and so they're not like oh you got to go race and you got to go do this Mm -hmm. and um, they let me play you know I played football when at a very young age also and that was a big influence on me and loved that sport and did basketball and baseball and And everything that you can think of I mean you know tennis it's like so the athletic background to me helps me even today yes um, in in motorsports and so I feel like that was a good push for my parents that they didn't just say oh you're just going to go race and that's all you're going to go do and not and forget about everything else because I think that helped me being on a team and understand the team concept Mm -hmm. helps today and sort of that foundation started at a young age but I was on dirt bikes and go-karts and I've kind of done the same thing for my kids right now. I've had them on dirt bikes and go-karts at a young age, and, and I don't know where they're going to go with that also, but I'm not trying to uh, direct them one way or the other. I just want to give them the taste of it.
0: Well, and you've got to let kids be kids as well, let children have their childhood and and enjoy it, not put too much pressure on, which sounds very similar to, to what your upbringing was. So dirt bikes, go-karts, when did you first start competing then,
1: rather than just turning around in the dirt or around the yard having a bit of fun. So we went oh, I was 10 years old we went to a track that's just north of here up in Kentucky, paducah Kentucky. I can remember it just like it was yesterday and and it was uh it's somebody's cuz my my oldest is he's 9 years old. He's he did his first couple of races this year and we've reconnected with some wow. some old friends that actually knew my dad and uh and some chassis that I raced later on in my karting career, but so it was kind of like it brought those moments back when I first started, but it was in Paducah, Kentucky, a great road course there, mm-hmm. uh, very challenging, and, and we went there with, you know, a Briggs and Stratton tiller engine, you want to say, oh. is what I did. So they're momentum cars, you know, yeah, go-karts yeah. that you have to understand. It wasn't a two-cycle that can come right back up on no. torque, and, uh, and so that's what I raced all the way through my karting career was the Briggs – class and wow. and we finished um if i remember i think we finished fourth or fifth that first outing i'm not sure how out of how many but it was uh it was a lot of fun and that's just i, I mean i was hooked right from the good go
0: so that's road racing mm-hmm. um because of your background and watching what your dad did was it always road racing because we're pretty much in nascar country right here and you know, drive fast turn left and so no dirt
1: racing no dirt carts no midgets or anything like that well we did go to the dirt so we started on the road course and but then we immediately went to the dirt and mm-hmm. that's what i kind of the vision that he had for me and i and, and unfortunately i can't ask him today where we are because he passed away several years ago but i look at it john as he took me from a road course during those early years we did run the oval here. We're really close to the Fairground Speedway, mm-hmm. Nashville Speedway. Um, that is a historic place. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sterling Marlin, Daryl Waltrip. I mean, you just you, you name anybody out of NASCAR, and this place. And I've driven there. We'll we'll get to that at some point too. But <laughs> it, it's a very challenging oval, and and love it. And, but we raced over there on the quarter mile, and but then we would go to a certain track. You know, we'd go run a dirt oval the mm-hmm. next weekend, and then maybe we'd leave that that.
0: Still week. in a cart.
1: Still in a cart. Yeah. And leave that weekend. Now, now, granted, I ran carts all the way up until I was 18. Times were different. You couldn't race as mm-hmm. early as you could now. Um, and so I stayed in carts from age 10 through 18. But when we were doing the carts, we never set on a championship and said, we're going to stick to this one criteria mm-hmm. and run that. So we'd run from the dirt oval. We would may run the next weekend, but go in the Carolinas and run an asphalt oval. Mm-hmm. And then we'd leave the Carolinas and he'd say, okay, we're going to go up in the Midwest and go run a street race. Huh. And so it's like, we, and we won one of the big races. It's not around anymore, but, um, Quincy in the park was a big, big straight race up mm-hmm. in, up in the Midwest. And I think Jamie McMurray won that at mm-hmm. one time also, he was up there. And, and so running those races and we ran Elkhart Lake, which is up in the, uh, up in the Midwest is North of, um, South bend. Mm-hmm. And so taking me to the variety of tracks that I went to go learn, I think helps with cars that I get kind of thrown into yeah. that. Okay. You're going to go learn this car. And you've got to pick it up right away. And I think... And this was
0: all on the same machinery on
1: It is, yeah. I mean, we we had some chassis that were made to go, you know, only left. Yeah. And then we had some straight chassis that were made to go left and right. And mm-hmm. so I had some great chassis um, sponsorships from Invader and uh, Phantom Chassis at the time. And, and we ran, actually ran the Phantom Chassis and Offset Chassis down in Barnesville, Georgia, which is a famous track that's been down there for years. We won the Winter Nationals, um, I want to say it was in 97 or it may be somewhere in that range. Um, but we wanted on an offset chassis because wow. we only had one right-hand turn. So we just went down there and, you know, and made it work. And it, it was <laughs> fun.
0: So. Kind of like what you do nowadays. It's uh, how you set the cars up asymmetrically when you go to somewhere like
1: Lime Rock Park. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's the same thing. You just kind of deal with that one left-hander up there and make it work for, for the right-handers there. But that, that was the upbringing I see that he did there. and And it was really, really good. And I think that helped along the way. And I wish more kids coming in – would not get so influenced mm. and stick to one, um, aspect of the sport, go get a variety. And, and, and we obviously work with uh, Jeremy, mm-hmm. who, who's been heavily involved in on a team USA scholarship is that I'd have to sit down and maybe have a chat with him that I wish more drivers coming up today would start to go, let's do Let's go do a road course. Okay. Let's go do an oval. Yeah. Let's bounce around a little yeah. bit and get that variety instead of trying to stick to one championship.
0: And certainly from in the past when I've spoken to any drivers, but, um, guys who've made it to the very top and certainly over here in the US coming off dirt was never a bad thing feeling a a car moving around motorcyclists say the same funny enough and one of the reasons that the guys when they came over in the 70s and 80s from the US to Europe to race on those big hairy Formula 1 bikes um, the reason that they could deal with the wet even though they weren't used to racing on the race because they'd all ridden on dirt yep. so they were used to things moving around underneath them um we're with owen trinkler it's one of the long ones here on the radio show limited network of channels um early years then karting uh, doing a bit of dirt bikes watching your dad fixing the lola there's got to be a story back there that we will <laughs> go on to another time but this is this is about you right now when was your first car racing
1: and what car was it it was da- actually road Atlanta. So we're going, <laughs> we're going back to road Atlanta. Not, okay. Yeah. It, it road Atlanta. And, um, you know, it, it was a sports 2000, um, mm-hmm. old Tyga. Mm. And, um, it's a 1984 model that he had kept around and had a guy locally here, about 30 miles from Nashville here was holding on to the car, kind of rent it from him. And we did a, um, you know, sSA driving school and started in that, that regards. And then actually that same weekend, I was running a, a go-kart race at, uh, I may get the name wrong, Cartersville, Georgia, I think, which was fairly close to Road Atlanta, maybe 45 minutes or so. Okay. And so I was – understand, John, at those days in karting, I was actually making money you All know, right. with, with some of the, the sponsorships that we had. And then as far as the, the races, were paying pretty well to win really? on some of these dirt races. And so it was mm-hmm. a dirt oval we were running. And so we went to Road Atlanta, and it was a double – I don't know if it was a national or regional event – but I remember getting in the car after the car race and going straight to the oval track race on a cart. And I think that's the last weekend I actually ran the car because I said, I've got to stick to one or the other. I got to make sure I'm going to make this work. And, um, but that was pretty funny that we, that we did that. And I I think I actually raced against uh, Andrew Davis's dad Hmm. at at Rhode Island and beat him. And he was in a newer sports 2000. And uh, so I always give Andrew a hard time about that, that I beat him in an older – I beat his dad and I was in an older Sports <laughs> 2000 that wasn't supposed to be able to do that. And, and so that was a lot of fun. And and uh, But those were the early years in, in that Sports 2000, which helped me also as momentum. You go back to yeah. the karting and the Briggs class, had the little four-cylinder Pinto motors. And mm-hmm. so they weren't putting out a lot of power. And we we stayed in that. We bought a, a chassis from a guy out of uh, North Carolina and went to try to go to the runoffs. The big thing for my dad was that he – he was focused on the runoffs, and maybe that's because of the up, upbringing that he was focused on Seca, mm-hmm. and so we were always trying to to go win the runoffs. And we went there in a in a Shannon Sports 2000, and we did fairly well. I think the best we did with that car we actually led some races at some point. At, it was at Mid Ohio's when they had the runoffs there, mm-hmm. and we had some issues at times. But I think the best we did was third um, with that car. But I think I learned a lot with with that car because the that the Shannon uh, chassis. Uh, was designed by a guy, Eddie Jones, that used to be involved. I know it, Andretti Green. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if he's still there uh, at this point. I haven't kept up with him, in, in and it's been many years since I've talked to him. But the window, the setup window, was really small. But mm-hmm. once it was on, it was, <laughs> it was good. Yeah. And so I think that helped me a lot with setup of the car, that you had to make sure that you were always fine-tuning the car mm-hmm. and understood what was going on, because there were some other chassis that were out there, Lola's in particular, that the window was just a little bit bigger. Um, but I think it was a good thing that we, we ran that car for a while.
0: How difficult then was it, you, there you are, making money out of sponsorship, out of prize money in carts to say, right, I'm going to have to start all over again and start at the bottom and it's going to start costing the family. So bank a mum and dad here because you're 18, 19 year olds, still at school or yeah. left school, yeah. still at school. So... That's a big decision at that point to say, right, let's give all that up and start afresh over here.
1: It was real tough because at that point, it's like, are you going to stay in the carding? And not say? I had goals where I wanted to be. And we're not, we weren't, you know, even now at the time, we weren't super self-funded to make it work and we did everything that we could and I was still in school and, and for the ones in there i later had to get out of school just because I had to try to make it work and and, and the working that I had to do um, to get to where we are today and, and continue to go but it was a tough thing to sit there and swallow and say okay we're going to make this and we're going to give up the carding and we're mm-hmm. going to go do this and so my parents i i think them every day that the, what they took on and understand that now is being being a father to two boys that, that I, I don't see how they made that happen at times <laughs> to make this work and and you know because it it was rough on them the traveling that we did mm-hmm. at a young age and it just every weekend we were gone somewhere and, and you talk about the schooling i got to go do something for um the time I think, uh sir jackie stewart was in town doing something for bridgestone and i remember my I think my dad brought the letter in and said, yeah, he's going to see Dr. Jackie Stewart today. <laughs> <laughs> that was the excuse. <laughs> they had no idea who he was, but um, that was he was doing an event here at Nashville at the time, and so I remember going out, you know, doing that, um, getting to meet him. And I know his thing was you need to go to Europe and that, at that mm-hmm. time, but we couldn't afford to go yeah. do that, and there was no way that we were going to make it work. But for me, what happened at the time – in this program and Jeremy may be familiar and actually Jeremy is familiar with it. Cause he was on the board as the team green Academy that came mm-hmm. around in 96. And I was, I was the first, uh, in that first class, I was picked as one of the top 25 drivers, young wow. drivers around the country. And so for me, that Are you, how old then? Owen? Um, I think I was just 19, 19 or 20. Wow. So, and that, that was it, to be in, in that first class. I mean, we had, um, Andy Lally comes to name BJ Zacharias, which is a good friend who's raced mm-hmm. in IMSA. Um, uh, the late Kenny Orwin Jr. was mm. in there also, and so, I mean, you had some really good, good drivers uh, that were involved in that first class, and so the, to me, that it's one of those things where you, when you get to that point, it's like, okay, we can make this work. We just mm. got to get the right brakes and, and try to keep. So that was like an
0: affirmation, if yeah. you will, right? Hey, wow, yeah, okay. This is not just a pipe dream. This is not just something that is way off in the distance. It's, it's, it's there. It's still going to be hard to get there. I sense a huge amount of um, realism instilled in you from your dad, quite clearly, because he will have seen the good and the bad side with what he'd done in the past. But it was there. It was potentially attainable.
1: Yeah. And I think even for your your parents, they understand that, Okay, now he's getting recognized by Mm. I mean, at the time they were the top IndyCar team Mm -hmm. around with Barry Green's team and Kim Green running it. And so I I think at that point it's like, okay, this investment that we've made, um, we've done everything we can to this point that, okay, he's got some talent and let's see if we can continue to make this work. And there's obviously a lot of help along the way, but I think that's where IMSA for me really started to come involved is that we went through that sequence of events and um, it was a good learning curve for me at the time and to understand that what was the process when you say it was the
0: Academy? What what did that actually mean, and what did it consist of? So they,
1: so they sent us out in groups of five um, out of the 25 and went out into Las Vegas Motor Speedway, and I think uh, Derek Daly's program had mm-hmm. just come online. And so they sent us out there in little formula open-wheel cars, and then they put us in different scenarios. We were on slick tires, and then I know we ran on some just treaded tires mm-hmm. and put us in different scenarios, and they came back and graded everybody. Um, and then they came down to a five- five-man shootout at some point also we didn't make it but I think we were really close to to making it back there and um, but it was good to kind of I guess when you're going to get told no a lot more than you're going to get told yes and so at that early age I'm not saying everything was easy at that point but when that didn't happen that it's like okay I got to really keep Hmm. pushing forward because I feel like I should be there and you got to keep just keep grinding and fighting your way and, and don't give up.
0: It's amazing actually when I have these chats with people how many times that the first setback, the first somebody saying no or the first failure at a a championship provides a real turning point where it could either be, right, I'm giving up or right, I'm going to push harder. And everybody who gets somewhere has clearly taken the right-hand curve and has, has pushed harder. So what did that... So at that point, were you thinking IndyCar? Were you thinking, was there anything beginning to form in the in the middle distance there? And, and, and what was your next step after, after after that academy had really sort of G'd you up in one way and then sort of pushed you back down in another?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, John, I wanted to go to, I mean, when I first started in, in racing, I mean, Indianapolis 500 is where I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're only six hours away from there. And being, in, I mean, I guess you can say we're the South still, but we're close to the Midwest is that, any cars where I wanted to go, and a little bit of influence on my background at that time um, from my father, but it just to me, I kept trying to push you know because we were doing uh, the four leader uh, the Formula continental championship a little bit of trying to do as mm-hmm. much as we could we couldn't afford to do the whole season, and but we were making it work and had some decent results um, but then we just kind of we had to sit back as a team and we looked at it as you know where do we need to go? Where we think we can make this longevity and make it work, mm-hmm. and at that point, IMSA was still that was the place we sort of pointed out and said, okay, let's take off, let's use the success from Team Green mm-hmm. as a sp- spring into that form of racing. And I and I think I'd have to talk to to Andy, because we were teammates at one time in IMSA and his Andy Lally, Andy Lally, yeah. yeah. That I think I was probably the first one to sort of I'm going to cross over and I'm going to mm-hmm. go, I'm going to. Not put open wheel behind me, but focus on trying to make it a career no matter where it is. Because I, I just want to drive. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a tractor, I'll, I'll, race any, <laughs> I'll race anything. So it doesn't matter to me. And but- was
0: that because of the, the financial implications? It looked, I won't say easier, more likely that you could earn a living and pay your bills by going into IMSA racing as opposed to having to keep forking out and keep forking out to do formula racing?
1: Yeah, because I think at the time, in in the mid-90s, you had a lot of influence coming from other countries here Mm. um, that maybe had just a a lot more money than, than I know that we could put together. And so you looked at it and said, we need to go somewhere else and make this work. Is it sort of resetting the button? Maybe it is. It's almost starting over again. But I think we had enough experience. On the open wheel side, and also you could carry around that team green. And yes. that, that and at the time because the success of that team, mm-hmm. um, when you would walk into an owner and say, "Well, I was selected in this top twenty five. I didn't get picked as the one, but I was." They had a good view of me mm-hmm. at the time, and to be selected into that class, so I think that gave you just a little bit of. Um, credibility within some of the teams there. And that, that's when I made my first start at Daytona. I think it's in 97 in the Rolex 24. Wow. And uh, with Jeff Ward, which Jeff Ward at the time was doing pretty well. And he'd done some IndyCar stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think he'd driven for Chip Ganassi at one time. And and so we did that, you know. And- hang
0: on, hang on, hang on. So 97, you are 20? 20, yeah. 20. And you make a start at the Rolex 24 at Daytona. As a pro driver, you hadn't put any money in? No, no. That's extraordinary. I mean, do you look back on that now and think that you understood enough how important that was? Did you take enough from it, or was it all just a bit? Ah, oh, well, you know, here I am. This is what I do.
1: No, I, I, I mean, I, I remember I hounded those guys forever. <laughs> <Good> <laughs> that for I you. that I wanted to get in there, and and that you probably heard on on most interviews is that you know I kept pounding the phone, pounding the phone, and keep you know till I get the answer that I want is was yes, or mm-hmm. we'll give you a try at least. And so we came down and they gave us a try, you know, at the, at the Daytona test days. And then, you know, yeah, okay, they were probably looking for somebody to bring a bunch of money, but mm-hmm. then they turned up that they couldn't do it and said, hey, hey, we'll give you a shot here, kid, and see what you can do. And, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it was – I learned a lot, um, you know, just during those experiences and especially with some of the experience that Jeff had, mm-hmm. um, just how to take care of a car and and you got to drive it in situations. I remember that race in particular that – we didn't finish great, but we did finish, and and that, that that's a feat in itself. And it was a new team, and and uh, you know the the car was run around, and you know. And what was the car? It was the uh, it was based off the Chevron, and I did oh, yeah. I did a uh, something with Marshall Pruitt this year on it. Mm. It was the cop. Um, I can't remember what they called it now. He he had all the information on because I'd kind of put it out of my mind a little <laughs> bit to some degree. But it's based off the Chevron, mm-hmm. uh, so it was a WSC car, and but it. it it would pop out of gear, you know, late in the race. If you didn't have your foot on the gas, so you had to come into the corner, brake, push it to neutral, no drive on any of the oh. tires, come to the apex, blip it, roll it back in gear, and then do the same thing at all the other turns there oh. at Daytona. So to me at early ages that you had to make sure that, you know, you're going to get the car home and how you're going to get it home and take care of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that helped a lot tremendously at that point. And so we bounced around a lot that year to different teams and because we didn't have the money. I had good backing, um, you know, from Goodyear Tire at the time was helping, you know, me because they were they were involved in a lot of the other programs we were doing before that, and mm-hmm. so they would help a little bit. Uh, to and me,
0: how were you earning money then? So you still in school at that point? or You had already left school. Were you working? Were you still living at home? What was what was the what was the family situation?
1: No, I was over in uh, North Carolina, you know, working. Uh, I was actually in school, but I was working for a, for a guy, Richard Morgan, who ran a Continental team. So I was working for him also but i was in school at the time trying to make that work and then traveling a bunch and i was in the heart of nascar country at the same mm. time um because i figured that's where i need to be in motorsports. you know that it was just how much it's grown over there in the charlotte area so, and what were you doing on the team just anything i could sweeping the floor you know helping them out Ready. you know whatever whatever needed to be done and just trying to learn you know i wanted to be involved and in, um and unfortunately i did stop school so the kids that are listening that I still promote you got to finish school but my situation mm-hmm. was a little different that I had to had to make a choice at the time to to you know make it work for me and what what I feel like And know.
0: what was that turning point do you remember that said right I I'm splitting myself into too many pieces here because ultimately that's what it comes down to I understand it's a difficult decision for anybody to make but if you haven't got wealthy parents or a big backer or you were signed up by McLaren at age 11 then those are the harsh decisions that sometimes you've got to make. So what was it that made you say uh, to your mum and dad, "Hey guys, sorry, but I've I've got to choose one thing or the other. I've, and, and I think I want to go into motorsport, and I'm going to have to leave school." Because I can imagine that must have been a difficult conversation to have.
1: No, but they understood the investment that we put into it to that point. Also, good for them. And so I think that they, as parents, I mean, understood that you know we need to make you've got one chance at this and you need to try to make this work. School is very important. Mm-hmm. and But uh, the time that it was taking, and I, and I was at a smaller school also, and so to some degree it was hurting me in a way because I couldn't keep up with the work mm-hmm. that was going on. And also I was getting counted absent against my grades at the same time. And so that wasn't working out too good for me to be. I, I probably should have gone to a bigger school and maybe we, we could be talking differently about it. But I was mm-hmm. at such a small school. It was actually smaller than my high school that probably didn't help in a way. But we tried to um we tried to make it work and we actually remember talking to the school that hey you know you're going to get mentioned on uh speed vision and mm-hmm. there's certain things and and we were because at the time IMSA had a had a series that we were running in 1996 and maybe was a little bit uh, yeah, it was 96 that um was called the slick 50 pro series and so that's where we took the the sports car the mm-hmm. the, the sports 2000 we went and ran not the whole season but we picked out certain races and um and that was on Speed Vision. So they were getting coverage. And when mm-hmm. you're 19 years old, they're going to know. You're uh, in the, school. You're in school, and they want to know mm-hmm. where. And so mm-hmm. that's going to get covered on national TV. But it just didn't work. Um, the school didn't really care about that. And <laughs> it didn't, it didn't, maybe motorsports is a different place today than it was then. It, it Especially
0: made, in that part of the country. I, I bet it is. They'd be shouting high and low yeah. uh, about that. Where was the big break? Was there a big break, or was it just a just a general move into the professional ranks presumably once you'd left school you had a bit more time so you could go and do what every driver does do a bit of driver coaching work for manufacturers and 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 that sort of thing did that once you'd left school did that make an appreciable difference
1: yeah, because it allowed me to work a little bit more, you know, and I, I could go do the coaching and the driving school that was doing it uh, at the Pandos Racing School at the time, and then also the, the Porsche Sport Driving School started, you know, sometime um, in 99, and so it allowed, it freed up time to go do those things and mm-hmm. make that work, and then you get more, as you're teaching there, you're still getting seat time, yeah. and um, and so that's good, and you're honing your craft and learning more, and I, mean, I think any time in a car is good, no matter what it is, uh so street car, race car, so...
0: And personal skills, because you're dealing with people, you're having to try and transfer your knowledge. There's always the opportunity that you, and I know it's frowned upon, but you might meet somebody who goes, hey, I could help you out a bit.
1: No, you could. And then you talk about the personal skills. I did some programs with uh, Lynn St. James. She had a driver development program at one time. And so I went, I actually went to that program and then went there back as an instructor at one point mm-hmm. uh, with her. And I don't, I think she still does that program. I do keep up with her when I see her at the mm-hmm. track. Uh, but I think that was a great thing. It wasn't geared just towards women in racing. It was geared towards anybody in racing that need to get better at those skills. Cause mm-hmm. she understood that also. And that's what Lynn was very good at. And so I, I think, that helped also at times. They made us give speeches. And, and I, I'm glad nobody has any video of that around now because that was probably horrendous, my first couple of speeches. In Aren't moment. you pleased
0: that we did our growing up and our mistake-making in life as well as in our career in an age where not everybody had a camera on their cell phone?
1: I am so thankful.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that would not be good. No, I, I think that... I, mm, I don't even want to go there. So there you are. You're grinding out the early part of your career you're grounding grinding out a living in some way shape or form by doing all the things that that most drivers have to do um how's the racing going at this time we're getting towards the end of the 90s the early 2000s M- my first time over here is 1998 for the first Petit Le Mans and then ALMS starts in 1999 and that's my story and you know I'm here because some John Peno's told somebody to find out who that guy with the strange English accent, well, accent was and bring him out for Petit Le Mans and get him to organize a radio station. Um, how's the career going in the late 90s and into the early two thousand?
1: Well, I think it's it was tough then. I mean, to me, we were bouncing around doing uh, the Slick 50 Pro Series. I think at some point during the 97 season, I ventured off into... Um, what would be now the Continental Tire Championship, mm-hmm. and drove a race in a BMW. Is that was
0: speed challenge in those yeah, days.
1: It was speed challenge. We were on Toyota tires. I remember mm. that much, and I can't remember if it was speed challenge. It might have been, but it was a BMW Z3. I think was the first car that right. you know BMW brought out of that brand. And it's actually Andy not Lally, and I were teammates at Watkins Glen, and so mm-hmm. I think that was the first race that we had drove together at Watkins Glen. I actually was driving a WSC car in the in the six hours at the same time that weekend. Wow. And I think that was Andy's first sports car race. So I'd have to go back and really ask him. But I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, that's that was his first sports car race. But then I drove for another team, Bernie Cochran Jr., which they're out of Pennsylvania. And dear friends of mine, I still get texts from them today. And then they follow along and gave me an opportunity to go run, um, I guess it would be compared to their GS car now, but it was a mm-hmm. Pontiac Firebird. Mm-hmm. And so I did a few races during that season with them when some seats opened up and and sometimes they ran a 4 almost a four-car team, I think, is wow. what they had. So they and they had some flexibility there and drove um, a few races, I think, at Sonoma. Uh, we drove at uh, Sebring, I think, for them that year. We And did. again, you, at this
0: point, are you getting paid? Are you paying? Are you just
1: getting the seat for free i'm not saying i'm walking away with a paycheck but i'm not sitting there right stroking a big check to go do it so right. i think at that that era that you know for me that was you know being that young age i just want i wanted an opportunity mm-hmm. you know to get it so you ahead. drove anything
0: anytime if somebody if the if the question was can you drive the answer would normally be yes
1: yes yeah <laughs> what, what do you need i'll do it yeah so, so i th- just you're gaining experience at that point and, and learn a lot you know on the teams that I was on, because I, I know I had David Murray on the, on Bernie Bernie's team. Bernie Cochran is David Murray was teammates with his son, mm-hmm. uh, Bernie Jr. And so being on a team that had veterans on it that you were learning mm-hmm. all the time uh, with those guys. And so then we got through that stretch and we started to come into 99 and say the 2000 era. You know, it started to get tough for me a little bit because – there's some people here in the Nashville area that I raced with at times that were starting to kind of go the NASCAR route. Mm-hmm. And at the time, Nashville Fairgrounds Speedway were kind of coming back to this that I looked at and said, man, NASCAR the, at the time was the Bush Grand National Series. They yeah. had a race here. The trucks had a race mm-hmm. here. And I was like, man, I got to put something together to make this work here. I got to come back here. And, and some of those um, late model races and mm-hmm. were on TNN. That's yes. a national TV. Yeah and so we put a package together got some sponsorship
0: and who was doing that were you and your dad still working together to get the sponsorship you didn't have a management company or anything like that
1: no i didn't have a management company but my dad was such a sports car (laughs) guy, and i don't know how helpful he was with some of it or or believed that i should be doing that Mm. so you're saying
0: his heart wasn't quite in it
1: yeah because i mean and we'll go on because there was a, a a car i did drive for him and and uh in 01 but so we probably ninety nine, two thousand, I was looking at like, okay, this is where I need to maybe change direction a little mm-hmm, bit because mm-hmm. I see what's going on over here and the growth of NASCAR at the time and what they were doing here. And we ran fairly well. We we ran um five races in one season and and you know, we had major fields at that time, over thirty trucks. as mm-hmm. I was running a late model truck and we had a couple of top five finishes in those five races that we did. So we try to put a package together for the next year and just couldn't make it work. We did one start in it, and the deal just didn't work right. And then um, went away from that. But then during that time, my father had probably, you know, been, and I can say this pretty honestly. he Probably financed himself to the gills on mm-hmm. on a certain project that we were doing um, that he self funded. And I, I don't know how today we we made it work because we actually sold the car for a profit, which is un you know believable at the time for a race car that we right. but we built one of the um, probably the first. Be the equation, I guess, now to the GT3 Corvettes. Right. And so that was in the process. I think that that project for him started in in 2000 because the plant got shut down, Bowling Green, just north of here, Mm -hmm. shut down for a weekend. And they ran 25 chassis across that were sold just to go be race cars Mm -hmm. at the time. And this is when the C5R was around. And so we it went to Pratt and Miller, and they did. I guess they did all the suspension and stuff. But then the car came back to Atlanta, where a good friend of his was uh, lived. And so they were down there working on it as a project for them. And I think his vision was to get you know, hey, we can't stroke a big check for me to go drive mm-hmm. for somebody else because I was mm-hmm. getting rides, but I wasn't getting you know the best rides either because I couldn't go do. Because
0: at some stage you've got to get results. It's all right getting experience. And driving anything, and I complete, and I think everybody will understand that. But at some stage, this is a results based business. Although I have to say, I think in the States, people look a little deeper than that and say, wow, he was 11th in that car. And actually, that car should have only been 20th, which tends not to happen in Europe. But anyway, to my original point, it is a results based business. So it's not just about getting a ride, it's about getting the right ride.
1: Yeah, and that's what, and I was getting some results in in the 97 was in the wsc car i drove um a cudz the buick oh, yeah, that, yeah. that year and so we were taking it as a v6 at the time and we were running against the riley and scott v8s and the hawk v8 and some other chassis that were out there and i know Watkins Glen, for example we were running in the top five unfortunately i, I was in the car a majority of that race and we ended up blowing the engine with about 30 minutes to no. go but i mean I, it's like but that at that point it's like man this is going really really well mm. in a car that probably shouldn't be competing no at all um and so i drove some races in that car and so i it, but i think we just felt like we're, we're in rides that are c rides and mm. we're getting close to the b minus guys and we're kind of but we can't win a race in this car mm. and so it's all results based and so i think my father looked at it and said if i'm going to go spend this i'm going to go try to do my own deal mm-hmm. and make it work. And, and I don't think he really had it for me. If I didn't drive, that's didn't really matter at the end of the day, but can mm-hmm. we make, can we get funded guys in this car mm-hmm. and make it work? And so in '01 one, we debuted at Texas motor speedway and, uh-huh. um, and, the in the Corvette, the C5R, we finally got it together and, uh, Phil Creighton, um, which, which you may know was in the paddock a lot. And so Phil and my dad were pretty good friends. And so they put something together to try to make it work, uh, for them. And, and so I drove that, that race, um we took the car that was the opening weekend at texas i don't you may have been there i'm not sure i was
0: i was and the previous year we'd nearly finished the season there we were much later in the year uh, or much later in the summer and it was hotter than hades and people were passing out and then we went back the first race of the following year and it was freezing cold it was a horrible weekend
1: yeah no it was and i and i don't know how they wanted to open the season there to, to that that track cause especially when you had sebring coming up mm. one, one of the mega races that you wanted mm. to be at And so we went to Sebring and qualified. I think we, at that point, John, I mean, if I remember correctly, there was a ton of factory cars Mm -hmm. because that was the BMW V8 Mm -hmm. factory program. You had the Alex Job cars there. Mm -hmm. And I think we qualified six on the grid or maybe somewhere in that range. Uh, But we were one of the first non-factory cars Mm -hmm. on the grid. Still early on in the phase of this car, um, the car had great potential. Mm. But we did that race. We had a uh, issue (laughs) – it's not a funny story I guess but it, I guess we can laugh about it now but on the strategy side that the car I mean in those days in ALMS you couldn't just drag the car back to the paddock and, and mm. go on you know you had to make sure you got back on power yeah the car um you know
0: yeah because it was LeMond rules no was, outside assistance yeah, yeah. that's correct
1: and so we we went through the first stage of the race or, or the first couple of stints everything was fine no problems swapping through our drivers and then uh I guess I'd run longer on fuel than anybody else until so they thought that they could go further. Uh-oh. I see where this is going. Yeah. And <laughs> so we 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 run out of fuel in, uh, back in the zoo area over by the hairpin. And so the thing, at some point, does make it back around to the back straightaway once the fuel kind of settles down and we get enough power maybe to get back there. But that's where it ends up eventually running out of fuel is about halfway down the back straightaway. And so that ends the day there, because at that point, that, that was the Sebring 2. There was no caution. Right. If you remember that that yeah. year, there was no caution. It went 12 hours, green mm-hmm. green flag to and checkered. And so and then, obviously, the Lamont rules, that you could just drag the car back. And it was almost – because I feel like that was a big event for us at the time to mm-hmm. establish this car on what we need to do for what my father envisioned. I mean, get some of his money back, because we mm-hmm. were – I think he was hurting very badly at the time. I mean, this is not, not that we could really afford to do this. And so he stuck his neck out really big to, to try to make this happen. And we made the debut at Texas, did it mm-hmm. the, the job at Sebring. and I feel like we did a good enough job. But well, we caught the attention of the European team at the mm-hmm. time. And they, they came to the States and wanted the car. Yeah. And uh, he came to me and I said, Dad, you got to let it go. Yeah. I mean – if they're going to write you this check to, to buy this car at this point and we're and make a profit yeah, and make a profit. Wow. You know, and, and, and let's, let's make it happen. And if I can go with them and make it work, mm-hmm. then that's okay. But it never turned out for me to be able to go, but I, it's, you know, sell the car and, and let it go and let it go to Europe. And do
0: you know where that car is now?
1: I don't, I'd love to find out where it is now.
0: So who was the European team? Do you remember who bought it?
1: So, well, funny story at the time, I guess it was, um, You know, early two thousands, who were into you know the boy bands and Mm -hmm. then and then the girl bands and Mm -hmm. stuff, and it was a a girl band that sort of funded the deal was Atomic Kitten, and you may be familiar with that. I don't know.
0: I did the launch of their British touring cars, (laughs) and actually, I I was working at the UK version of um, Rocking and Motor Speedway um, for my now darling and um long-suffering wife and i had to ask uh, her for the morning off to go and do it afternoon off to do the rehearsal and then the morning off to go and do the lunch and she said i hope they're paying you well and when i told her uh, how much they were paying me she went oh yeah absolutely take that you can make the, you can make it up it was very very off you go um, so yeah i we know them and in fact one of my very good friends martin hall um, who's just spent the summer out in Ibiza, had, I think, three of the four of the band out at the hotel that he was staying in, and doing a bit of work at. So they're still around, um, and that was a big thing. That was a big thing when they came into uh, the British Touring Car Championship. I, I wondered where that was going, because I, I had... A little thought in my mind about that. So that was the Atomic Kitten Corvette then?
1: Yeah, that was it. So yeah, you may know exactly where that car is today. I'm not- I
0: am not bet you somebody does who's so listening to this now. At yeah. uh, Entertainment, please, hashtag Atomic Kitten Corvette. I want to know where that car is.
1: No, I'd, I'd love to because obviously the history there w- with myself and my mm-hmm. father and stuff and the build of that car and... Yeah, it'd be neat to kind of see that car come back up because it was really the first, you look where we are in GT racing, it, it was the first GT3 Corvette, if you want to say, mm. in, in the world. And mm. um, and so, and I think Doug Feehan, he signed off on the homologation papers on it. And, and so that was, a, that was a goal that, I mean, they signed off at, at Sebring. And so that was really cool to mm-hmm. see that happen. And I think Corvette was behind it at the time. They really mm-hmm. wanted to see that happen. And for us, just financially, we just couldn't keep making it work. And when that opportunity came up, you had to let the car make the trip overseas.
0: Uh, the voice you just heard was Owen Trinkler. was sitting at his house just outside of Nashville on a uh, radio show-limited network of channels, Long One. Um, so now we're into the early 2000s, and uh, you're beginning, actually, in fairness, to get a little bit of a reputation, and a good one at that, in sports car racing. The Corvette's gone to Europe um, to be the atomic Kitten in Corvette, as we've just mentioned. Um, where does your career go next? And, and, and again, how are you making ends meet? How are you earning a living?
1: Well, doing all the race schools that I'm doing and then, you know, getting drives here and there that that are that are taken care of for me. And then I connected with a, um, through a good friend of mine, BJ Zacharias, mm-hmm. um, who, I who, you'd
0: been, who you'd been on that team, team green, team green academy with a few years before.
1: Yeah. And so, I mean, this is just for, for the young drivers listening that how relationships can work. So at the time BJ had Zacharias had a opportunity to go run the TRG, um, uh, I guess it was GT3 version of the mm-hmm. Porsche at uh, Mid Ohio, mm-hmm. and um, I think
0: it's Kevin Buckler's uh, racist yeah, group. Yeah,
1: and I think he had actually ended up winning that race. Well, at the time, Grand Am was still going, were, was mm-hmm. was going at the time, mm-hmm. and so he was driving for, uh, uh was a little team called Power Racing out of Long Island, um, right. uh, out of Long Island, and so they were doing the ST Championship in the Grand Am Series, which was called Grand Am Cup at the time. It really mm-hmm. had no title sponsor, and so BJ's like, look, I've got a conflict here. I can't make, um this race at VIR, I need to go do the mid-Ohio race. And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, I see, yeah, that's totally fine. I understand that you need to go do that. So I connected with them, uh, filled in for him during that race at VIR, went really well. Um, I'm not sure how we finished, but everything went well. BJ was trying to, he he won that race, so he was trying to catapult onto some other things. Mm -hmm. Then I stayed on with those guys. And we just kept kind of pounding the pavement. Not a super felt. We didn't. We had and what it, car was that? It was an Acura Type mm-hmm, R Integra, right. and so in the ST class. So that was sort of my first venture into front wheel drive at that point right. too, because I had not, not at that time had never been in a front wheel wow. drive car. <laughs> and then I was when I was doing that, and I was running um, the Grand Am series, the Rolex series at the time, and, and American GT also. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for the listeners out there, it's more like a Trans Am tube frame, mm-hmm. you know, car, and was bouncing around. Uh, during during a period there running with a guy named Kerry Hitt who's out of uh, the Northeast and he actually ended up winning the championship I can't remember what year it is it's in the mid-2000s era that he actually won I, I didn't do all the races with him but I did what I could mm-hmm. uh, as far as he couldn't have me there all the time because mm-hmm. he needed some funding to make it mm-hmm. work and, uh, but he ended up winning the championship. We won a race at VIR, mm-hmm. uh, the VIR 400, I think is what it was at the time. And that, that was really cool. Cause I hadn't won a race in a while, mm-hmm. uh, cause I'd just been bouncing around so much and that really found a home. And so that was, um, when that happened, Carrie's team w- went away, but then the power racing deal worked, mm-hmm. you know, for me and, the, and they such a great team. And we ended up winning at, uh, most I want to say that was an O. My father passed away in O two, so that would have been O three, O four era, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. And we raced against Don Salama, mm-hmm. so you kind of see he was racing for TC Klein, right? And we won that race there at Mosport. That was just that was so cool. That was kind of the first. That that probably is my first win in the Continental mm-hmm. Championship at this time.
0: Well, I was going to say, and that that starts your long association with what is now the Continental Tire Sports Car Challenge, which will be coming to the end at the end. Uh, end of its run at the end of season 2018 at road atlanta Um i'm not sure you enjoy being reminded of this but you are the most experienced driver in terms of starts as jeremy shaw my commentator uh, always says you couldn't have known at that time though surely that that was where that was where you were going to make your reputation
1: no, I just wanted to drive, though, and it didn't really matter to me, you know, where it was, if it was, I mean, I'll race anything, and but I was in a good situation there, the team spent the money, we were small, kind of like what we were at CRG, but we mm-hmm. were small, but uh Andy Linder who owned the team spent the money uh, on the cars and we you know we did everything we could to win the race and so we won there and then at that point they swapped and um we, we left the type RST program and went to the GS cars mm-hmm. and that was the E46 BMW mm-hmm. that we started to develop mm-hmm. and um and I just can't remember the years now where, like where we are but we're probably 05 somewhere in that range mm-hmm. I think now and so we developed that car bring that car out we don't debut it at Daytona because. Little team trying to make it work oh, and yeah, yeah. And, and build it and so I think we debuted it at Watkins I think and did okay but the best we never won a race in that car but the best we did we finished third at uh, at uh, mm. at and, uh, and 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 love that track and and we'll get there at some point because I won the last Continental race that was there yeah, yeah. and so that that team we, we worked really hard but then that team started to dissolve also at mm. it, it, at a certain point and I want to say that was during the '06 season that we could kind of see. GS was starting to get a little bit more expensive, and mm-hmm. in, um, in hindsight, but the
0: factory interest as well coming in in those days.
1: There was, I mean, Turner was there. I mean, mm-hmm. the big big money, and Bill auburn was running, and and so I mean, he had he had some big powerhouse teams in there that we were trying to compete against, and so maybe in hindsight, we maybe should have stayed in ST mm-hmm. at, at the time and made that work for a longer period of time. But Andy gave us everything that we needed, mm-hmm. um, so that deal dissolved in that in um, that '06. I think we're where kind of where we are now, and then so I don't do much at that time at the end of that season. Um, no, no, not much driving at that point, but I worked for, uh, John Wright and, uh, Gosh. Rob and Charles Morgan. Yeah. Um, we're really good friends. Uh, of you have eye. to
0: explain how big a name John and how many people John Wright knows.
1: Oh, but he's, he's Mr. Porsche here in the U S mm. and, uh, and runs obviously the team, uh, the 58 car in the weather tech championship now, but really mm. good guy. And so, I asked him, it's one of these things where you just got to make it work. Mm -hmm. And so the Morgans were coming on in the DP program with the Porsche and the Riley and Scott. Yeah. And so I said, Hey John, have they got anybody spotting for him? You know? Mm -hmm. And he said, no, 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 actually, but we'd love to have you. And so this is where it kind of looks to me as we go on that I want to be involved in the sport, no matter where it is. And if I can't be driving, I want to help somebody get to their goals where they want to be.
0: And getting to the racetrack is Mm -hmm. super important is super important.
1: I I was that 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 was the thing is get to the track. Um the paycheck does mean something cuz I need to provide food, mm-hmm. you know at the time and and make that work, but it's getting to the track and staying in front of them anybody there. And so I did that for John. I want to say that, that was 07, 08, somewhere in there. And But it gave me the opportunity to actually tested the car at Daytona during one of the November tests. And wow. so it's like for this, for, for the kids out there, like, oh, well, I don't want to go do that. Or I don't want to go spot. Or I don't want, that's not what I want, I want to be driving. You have to do all aspects of the sport to make it work. And at some point you're going to get an opportunity mm-hmm. to do a test. And I was able to do a test in the DPI car mm-hmm. or the DP car at the time with, with the Porsche engine, which was fabulous. And, um, it was a potential to do the race that year in the Rolex 24. I think um, some other Porsche factory driver came along, and <laughs> <died for me. laughs> but but I did drive in the Rolex 24 that year also with another team because mm-hmm. I was coaching somebody in GT3 Cup mm-hmm. at the time, and we actually uh, you know put a deal together to go run Daytona because I'd had some experience at Daytona mm-hmm. already. I'd run Daytona quite a few times at that point
0: in the WSA Cup
1: in the WSC car yeah. and and run it in American GT. So mm-hmm. I'd, I'd had. I don't know how many, that time, how many starts, maybe four or five and, and various things, uh, various motor, uh, various cars. So that experience led to the guys that were going to go run the GT three cup car for the first time. Mm-hmm. And it was when the 997 just was getting out. So maybe that brings us back to Oh eight. Maybe I yeah, think is when that, when that, yeah, when that car came out. So that was able to run with those guys and that was good experience for them. they had never been to Daytona. I was the fifth driver on there, but I understood my role, mm-hmm. but it put me in the seat and,
0: that did that? Is that when your association with Porsche started around about that time, or had you already started with the driving school and stuff like that? Because I know that's an association that you still have today.
1: No, I start – yeah, actually, it, it goes back to 1999 is when mm. that, when the promo that that program started off sort of kicked off. And it really started in 2000 mm. is when that that program right. took off. And then it was based in Road Atlanta. And then in 03, we moved over to Barber Motorsports Park mm-hmm. in Birmingham, where it is today, just because we need the dates. That's the one reason the program left mm. uh, Road Atlanta, because it just couldn't get the dates that it wants. Mm. And, and they run, you know, 150 days plus at at, uh, at Barber Motorsports Park. Wow. So, I mean, it's it's a healthy program. And that's a it.
0: full-time job, daily.
1: No, you could. I mean, some instructors—that's all they do. They mm. sit and they work there all the time. Um, but that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to drive, and but I'd fill in the gaps. And they understood that too, because it's it's good for the school that they've got somebody that that's out there um, driving, you know, in the series, and then some, you know, student can relate to that mm. person. So they they understand that role. And There's going to be some that some guys are just full-time instructors, and there's going to be some mm. guys that are sort of part-time that come in and out.
0: I want to bring you a bit. Close at yeah. the day today now. Um, we've established, I think, that you were prepared to do pretty much anything to keep in the sport, any job, get to the racetrack. Um, even when you're in a good team, having a good season, winning races, sometimes it doesn't go on forever. And we saw that even with you and the Catanios last year with that great run to second place in the championship. You never know what's going to happen. Here, Do you feel that what's happened to you in the past has given you the ability to adapt and to stay hungry and go out there and do your job?
1: Well, I think so. I mean, and we, we can just touch base. on. So I think the big break for me as we come in is, is my association with RSR Motorsports is mm-hmm. when I drove the minis. I think that opportunity there that was given by Randy Smalley. Not only did I drive there at one point, I managed the team, and so I did all aspects of the team mm-hmm. and understood that, and we ran four cars at one time and I think that helped I mean all my stuff previous before that helps because mm-hmm. I was willing to do anything that that we need to do as a team, but I feel like that was the the best when I was able to take over the management of that team with with randy and and organize that team that I was able to put the pieces together that I needed to to win a championship and understood you know before that i was kind of bouncing around and moving from team to team and that was but you hadn't
0: done a full championship for, no, a, long for a long time
1: a long time and I, and I was given an opportunity in 2011 to do that mm-hmm. and even before that i started i think i started driving there in 09 i didn't have a full season in 10 because you know renters had to come in but i was mm-hmm. still working there and so i had to i was the first one to go if we had a car go down or something mm-hmm. that but i'd still be at the track mm-hmm. helping the team do what we need to to do to compete and so in 11 i was that's a Second time, at the end of 2010, Sarah and I finished second at Miller Motorsports Park. Mm-hmm. But before that- Sarah Catanio. Sarah Cattano, yeah. yeah. Because that's the
0: start of that driving relationship as well. Yeah,
1: but, but that relationship goes back to '09. also. I mm-hmm. started coaching her because she was hanging around the team because uh, the Catanios are from Phoenix and the Smallies were also. And so at that point, and we'd already won two races and. 2010 I'd sat some of the season out but I came back mm-hmm. and we won um at New Jersey Motorsports Park then we won at uh Tour the last time to win there and
0: such a cool track and oh. such a cool event IMSA went there the American Le Mans series went there a couple of times and I love that place.
1: No, it's fabulous. I mean, I, I always loved going there and always adapted well uh, at street courses. We talked about I ran street, mm. street courses when I was on karting. Mm. And so talking about running carts on streets, they, I mean, cars, ah, it's easy. It's nothing. i got fenders around me. So that's, <laughs> that, that's, that's no problem. So I think that's where my big break really – that's where this started to elevate that, hey, I'm going to be happy here in the Continental Tire Series. I've mm. got a good program underneath me, uh, making a decent living at this point. And then I've got a great teammate coming into the 11th season. I was so excited about it, but she, she was doing a really, really good job. And I haven't I haven't run a full season at that point. Mm. And I was so excited to to go for that, uh, championship, but I learned a ton. I mean, we, we came within 20 minutes of winning that championship in in 2011, leading the race at mid Ohio. And then, uh, we had a clutch go out (laughs) and then we, so that. Catapults us from first at that point, leading the championship, and the, and the Kias end up. Uh, Nick Johnson and the Kia won it that year to go to fourth. Mm-hmm. And talk about uh, it, it took me. That was one of those setbacks that you kind of. It took me a little bit to get over, and maybe mm-hmm. even today I still have a grudge a little bit about that I should have. That we should have done things differently during that year, but I learned a lot because there's some mm-hmm. races that you, you you can't win everything, no. and I feel like at times that that I tried to win everything because the opportunities I had were so limited at the time I never was running for a full season so I would Mm. try to go win every race anytime I was involved in it just go win the race and so we probably put ourselves in position during that year I know that we could have finished second or third and been okay and just Mm. taken it and gone on and my engineer at the time Jim who I established a relationship from 2010 all the way to when the Catanios Mm. ended last year that he he worked with some really good drivers, some with Bill Arbelin and, and Joey Hand and those guys and so he, he really started coaching me along on, you know, oh and you can't win every race and yeah. you've got to understand what you need to do here and, and so I learned a lot during that season with him um, and that I might say
0: has stood you in good stead down through the years and particularly this year where you've got to take what's on offer that's how you build to a championship isn't it
1: it is. No, it, it completely, we understood, um, what we need to do. If you talk about more about this year and this mm-hmm. what but that's what I took from that point on when I was, from that 11 season on, that's where it's like, you know, if you're going to have a fourth place car that day, that's what you've got. And if you can, if you can get a third without putting the car in jeopardy, then take the third, but mm-hmm. don't do anything to not get the result that you need. It's okay to finish fourth sometimes. Not that I was trying to do like a Ricky Bobby I'm going to go win everything mm-hmm. and, and end up finishing last, but you just got to, understand the situation you're in at the time and I think this year in particular has been we have not had the best BOP at times and not not to kind of get into that whole conversation but we're not involved in that and we can't let that factor uh, something that we can't control change our attitude towards the event that we're going to we just have to go there and understand that our car is good with the certain things that it's good at and maximize that Mm -hmm. and then take, take the result on what it is and never Mm -hmm. put the car in jeopardy, uh, during the race. And, and my roles changed a little bit too, is starting the events. I finished one event at Watkins Glen this year, but that role too, is like, you've got to bring your co-driver a good car back too. you Mm -hmm. can't destroy the car. And even when the finishing, you've watched me finish races too. I would always be patient and ride it out Mm -hmm. ride it out. And and you probably saw that more when I really went to CRG, uh, my engineer really got into me that hey you don't have to you just gotta lead, you just gotta lead the last lap all you gotta lead and don't worry about the, all the laps in between and so I was really patient with the, the we worked on being so patient with making the car really good on long runs and taking advantage of that so the passes actually become easier because yeah. if you can make your car really good on long runs you don't have to get by them right away so you can just keep pacing yourself and then their car's falling off and your car's Getting better or staying the same, which is better than what they've got. Mm. And so you just got to, patience has been the best thing for me since the 11 season.
0: Well, with Owen Trinkler on a long one here on the Radio Show Limited Network of Channels, I'll, I'll come back to your motor racing and, and, and we'll finish up on that in a minute, but got to talk about home life. That's so important to you. I know that from what we've spoken about in the past and from clearly from what you're saying here. So, your mum and dad originally, um, then you move on. You're living on your own. You've now got a wife and two boys. How does that change your attitude to the job, which is motor racing? Because motor racing isn't just a nine-to-five, go-to-the-office, come-back job. Um, it's a bit like being a cop or a firefighter. You never know if you're coming back, let's be honest. We hope it never happens, but sadly, sometimes bad things do happen. Um, how does that change as your responsibilities as an individual, as a husband, as a father change? And how does that affect and does it affect what you do when you go out the track?
1: That's a great question, John. I mean, I think for me, I, I think the kids involvement's actually made me a better driver. You know, we go back to the patience of it. And I think for me, you know, I understand that, you know, I think people say, Oh, you have kids and you're probably going to go slower. You're not going to do certain things right. Like, or think about, you know, I'm not going to take that turn flat out now. Mm. Or you think that doesn't to me, I think you have to set by example because I want my kids to understand what their father does and what the effort that it's taken to get to this point where we are, where we sit today, um, in 2018, that I want them to understand all the effort that it takes. Uh, because I feel like today the society is different and, uh, and I don't want them, I want them to have drive and, and passion about something mm-hmm. uh, like I do in motor. I don't want say so it doesn't have to be racing for them, but what it is, then I, they're going to get my 110 cent, support to go do that. Um, but family's super important to me. I think far as an aspect of what's changed for me is I make sure that I schedule, you know, my trips away and, and I look at when I'm going to be here and not going to be here and make mm-hmm. sure that I make time uh, to coach them. I know I, I, I get, I'm super involved with them because I feel like that's an aspect that um, no matter what it is, I played a lot of sports growing up. Mm-hmm. But the mental aspect that we go through sports is 80% mental. And and so I think I can take that aspect to them and under, help them understand that, even mm-hmm. though I am their father, but we're still athletes mm-hmm. as, as race drivers. And that, to try to give them that foundation and make sure that mm. they're coached the right way and at these early stages in life. Um, and but to I,
0: take nothing for granted and not to be entitled and know that you're only going to get somewhere by – you might have talent, but talent is – at the top level it's never going to be enough. It's the right attitude and, and the right way of living your life.
1: Yeah, I, I want them to, yeah, that's why, I, you know, you want them to understand how much we, you know, we put into it and mm. that they need to do the same thing to make it in life and, and to get the things that they want to do. So I enjoy that aspect of it. To me, it's just awesome. I mean, I, I we, we had, a you know, a couple of games this weekend and just to see the success that they have mm. and, and the effort that they need to put for it. And the, I think they're getting the right tools. It's just trying to – Society's so different today that oh. we're trying to keep those outside influences away from them the best we can. But um, the family thing for me is tremendous, and that, that's where the teams I've driven for here the last couple of years has mm-hmm. been awesome to me because I want them to be at the track mm-hmm. and, um, and and my wife to be there and for my kids to be there. And
0: Well, Jen, I take it hasn't known you be anything else other than a racing driver. So you, you've always – earned your living in in motor racing something that isn't always an easy thing to come to terms with for a partner
1: no, it's tough. You I mean, should have had her here actually talking no, about no. it. No, yeah, <laughs> actually, yeah. You, you can get her at Road Atlanta. You can sit her down there. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, she is working now, but I think she gets it a little. I mean, she understands the aspect of it because um, her background's a professional dancer, and so mm-hmm. I think she gets understands the commitment that it takes, um, the unusual hours that it is. It's not a nine to five job, but it, it does have its perks, though. I mean, mm-hmm. when I'm home, I mean, we have some other things, other interests that, outside of racing that mm-hmm. we're trying to do now because we understand. Um, where we need to be long-term. I mean, mm-hmm. motorsports, I'd love to be in it forever, but we understand that that's, that's not reality. We've, mm-hmm. we've got to have other interests that, that we're taking our, our money and doing something with to make mm-hmm. sure it's outside of racing. But when I'm here, I'm here. And so I go have lunch with the boys and make sure that they that, that I'm here. But that's the upside.
0: Yeah. When you have a job that doesn't have regular hours, and hell, I know this, then on a Tuesday afternoon, if you've got the Tuesday afternoon and everything's done, you can go and do something that... You would never normally get to do on a Tuesday afternoon, yeah. and that sounds weird. But you've got to take those as as real, real incentives and real plus points. Um, that support from Jen, how important is that for you?
1: Oh, I think it's it's one hundred and ten percent important to me. Mm. Um, she has that support for me in any any project that she's doing, and I mm. feel that from her. And and I feel that that um, that's been some of the success that we've had. You know, it's not just me out there you know, winning a race or whatever we're doing, that's the whole family's involved in in Mm -hmm. those moments there. And and that's how we we perceive it here for us is that, you know, it's not just dad, you know, maybe out in front of the the cameras and stuff, but that's everybody what's going on back home Mm -hmm. and and, and the kids – also, and what they're doing and what they're maybe not creating much havoc for mom during that week at times. But, I mean, you've got to have that support. And I know you've interviewed some other wives that it's, mm. if it's not there, then that's going to affect you on the track. Mm. And so you, it's, it's this mental aspect of this game is you've got to be when you're at the track, you've got to be 110 percent focused on what you're doing there.
0: And that goes for everybody in the team, by the way, the, the spouses, partners of anybody in any team, whether it's broadcast team, officiating team racing team. Without the people back at home, none of us could do our jobs properly uh, at the track. Let's talk about doing your job properly at the track as we we finish off here, this long one with Owen Trinkler. Um, It's been a couple of seasons uh, of phenomenal results for you. The last season with Sarah, uh, ultimately in the Nissan Altima. Uh, Great second half of the season ending up at Road Atlanta last year with the win and second place in the championship, which frankly, before we had the break for Le Mans, um, you you would have slapped me across the face and told me I was a madman if I said that you two were going to be second in the championship. Then that came to an end. TGM came up. That was an opportunity that you had to take and you've made that work and the teams made that work. And that is a team job. It's it's you and Hugh that's leading the championship, but there's four drivers and two cars and a whole lot of people behind all of that, isn't
1: there? Oh, it's... I mean, Ted's been such a great owner and and from the Catanios to to Ted Giovannis and Chris and uh, just the whole family there, it's unbelievable. And I think they understood what Owen Trinkler's about at Sebring, um, and you guys might remember this, is that Ron Rigdon, our truck driver, his, his wife, Deborah, passed away, uh, during that event, mm-hmm. well, then I've still hold my CDL license, and I didn't hesitate once. I said, guys, I'll take the truck back from here, get it back to the shop, whatever mm-hmm. we need to do. This is a family, yeah. and and we're all in one, you know. Mm-hmm. And and so don't be looking for anybody else to drive it. I'll take care of it and mm-hmm. and make that happen. So I I think Ted understood. I mean, I raced against Ted a long long time, but I think the, that was good for both of us. Maybe is we're new to new partnership. Uh, to the team that hey this guy's willing to do whatever it takes mm-hmm. you know to make the team work or whatever we need to do and and so i think to me that it, it's been a just an awesome season for ted and mm-hmm. i'm so happy for the results that that we're having right now and because it, he's such a good guy and he's he's tr- he's wanted this so bad uh, mm-hmm. for this team and and some of the the lime rock win i mean it just goes back to the emotion all the all the wins for us mm-hmm. i mean the emotion is for it that the hard work that these guys put in—not that other teams don't—but you just when you're with your guys, and and we talked about this earlier. I would do anything for them, and I know mm. they'd do anything for me, and that that's what you want on a team. And it's all, uh, I watch a lot of football and different things, mm-hmm. and coaches on how they react, and mm-hmm. that, and that's what you want uh, football players to do for their coaches and yeah. coaches for their players. So mm-hmm. you got it. We're the quarterback of the team, and the, as the race drivers, that we want those guys behind us, mm-hmm. and um, and I make sure that they understand. Staying there completely.
0: As I did mention before, and Jeremy will, I'm sure, see it at the next race as well, you are the most experienced Continental Times <laughs> sports car driver in terms of sport uh, of, of start. How has the series changed? How have the cars changed? Because that GT4 car now is a pretty sophisticated piece of machinery. And, it, and let's make no bones about this. That is a proper... Racing car, maybe based on a street car, but that's a proper racing car nowadays.
1: Oh, it is. I mean, it's kind of funny from the first starts that I made back in the mid to late '90s in this series, and uh, and the Z3 and in the, and the Camaro and stuff. I mean, those were almost street cars yeah. with rope cages, and yeah. I mean, almost yeah. showroom stock cars. Yeah. And now you look, you go all the way up through the years, and now where we are with the GT4 regulations. I mean, the thing is just unbelievably good. uh The AMG GT4. I mean, just the the aspect of the car, the design work that they did with it. And also they based it a lot off the GT3 yes. AMG. And so Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so they, they took a lot of the things that they learned during that process and put it into this car. But to see where the series has transformed into it, – it, it's almost mind-blowing that we used to be not open trailers, but you could get away with a smaller trailer. Mm-hmm. And and so in the first race of that one – uh with the guys from long island from power racing we literally some of the pit crew guys were there and uh, I, we can say this now as fans they probably didn't have hard cards mm-hmm. at the time yeah. and but the team is like i don't know how we got these guys i really don't under, i can't remember but we had the team manager out training them how to do a pit stop and we end wow. up, up but now you can do that no. you know there's no way you could get away with that the the sports come along so much and i think in the continental tire series i think the pit stops is what's meant so much here mm-hmm. the last few years because you could only do so much on the cars and now the regulations are so tight on mm-hmm. what you can and can't do um in the gt4 regulations to the car i mean i had we had more freedom in the SD car last year yes as far as what we what we could do the shocks and the springs and everything mm-hmm. now we're in this really, really little box mm-hmm. um that we can't move much so i think you see the pit crews are got they're getting better they've got to, you know, this aspect okay where am i going to get the advantage mm-hmm. and uh, and ted's obviously invested in that i mm-hmm. think that's why you see us running stronger the second half of the year we've learned on what this car wants in this little box that we're in how we can tweak this car and try to get the best out of the, uh, the amg gt4 mm-hmm. at this point so that changes your mindset a little bit that because before you've been able to You've had this big box you could play in. Now it's yeah. come really, really close. That also
0: means that the guys, the nuts behind the wheel, which is you and Hugh in, in the case of your car, the consistency has to be, you can't have a bad day. You can't make mistakes out on the track. You're not, not only are you not going to win, you're not going to get a podium. You might not even get a top six yeah. if you make any mistakes now. That's pressure, man.
1: No, it's super competitive. I mean, I think i moved at an era in ST racing when it, that the fields were super competitive when you looked at the drivers that were there and the teams. And then we moved to the GT4 regulations this year in GS, and I think you saw – obviously see a lot of the ST guys that are mm-hmm. racing ST, they're in GS this year. Yeah. And so, yeah, you cannot make a mistake. You've got to be on on point every event and making sure you're doing the best thing. And I think that's why Hugh and I, we've looked at it as a team at TGM. We've looked at it, that the car – The AMG performs really good over a long run. Mm -hmm. And so take that into our advantage. Understand the car doesn't have the raw speed, and that we're not, we can't do anything about that. And we're going to do the best we can in qualifying in certain situations, but we're going to make sure we take advantage of where the car is really good and work on that aspect of the car and the setup of it because it's such a tight window to separate yourself. You've got to do it on the long run. And you look at the races that we've won. Um, and the way MTA and Bo Barfield are calling the events now, mm-hmm. they're less cautions than yes. they ever used to be. Yeah. I remember in this series, we would go caution every three or four laps <laughs> back in the day when we had a hundred cars or something mm-hmm. into the field. But, and so the races are run completely different. So your mindset has to change in that way. And I think that's helped our situation, yeah. um, with the car that we have, uh, and and the strategy that we've employed this year is for the races to go caution free.
0: Hardest questions are last. The first one, I'm going to to give you a fair warning of these. The first one's relatively easy. What's your best racing memory or life memory, whichever you, you prefer, both if you wish? And do you have any regrets, career wise? Let's do regrets. Do you wish you'd gone the NASCAR route?
1: Oh, you look. You know, sports car. I love sports car racing. Yeah. I mean, I love any of any racing at all. Maybe but I guess the only regret is maybe if I'd have gone NASCAR sooner, maybe I'd be in a situation where I could just do all sports car racing and be <laughs> in this situation a lot sooner financially.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. I can see how that would be be attractive. Yeah. I mean, is there anything that you haven't done that you'd like to do? You've you've raced all the big races here. In the States, but you've not done that Europe thing, which you did mention uh, earlier on. Is that something that there's still room for to go and do maybe Le Mans or the Nurburgring 24 or Spa or, or Bathurst? All of those races well, spars a gt3 race now but all of those races have a, a gt4 component which is what you're racing now
1: i know a, a car could go over there and run it's no, got to talk not to le mans ted. in fairness but
0: actually you could run out le mans in the support
1: race is, in yeah. the in the road to le mans race, yeah, yeah yeah so it's got to talk to ted about going over there <laughs> but, but i think it for me it is i was so focused on the states and what was going on here um le mans on the radar but i think for me it, Indianapolis was always the race when I was growing wow. up is where I wanted to be. And now I think I've, I've, I've aged past that now that I'm not going to go do the 500 now, but you look at that event and I don't say it's a regret, but I wish that we could somehow, cause I had a goal at, at 25. That's where I wanted to be. And I mm-hmm. was 20 years old at the time. And I feel Hey, I can make this work in the next five years. And so the, the influx that was going on there, you know, you had guys getting rides in there and making it work. Cause that's, that was when the split was between mm-hmm. IRL and cart and, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's a regret, but that's one thing you look at to say that's where I wanted to go, and mm-hmm. it just didn't work out. But I made it work somewhere else, and that's where I'm so thankful that. Continental's efforts that they've done, I know they're mm-hmm. leaving here in, in a few days, but the efforts that they've done, I I love this series, how competitive it is, and how sort of grassroots it is. It probably fits mm-hmm. me that way mm-hmm. um, because I'm sort of a scrappy kind of mm-hmm. claw-your-way-to-the-top kind of guy, mm-hmm. and that's how this that's how I kind of view this series and mm-hmm. some of the races you've watched mm-hmm. on how you just, you've just you got to scrap that way all the way to the end. Mm-hmm. And so I, I love to be in weather tech, but i got to be in the right situation to be mm-hmm. over there. I'm not just going to take something that I feel like is – right around I want to go compete and win and that's the situation I am at TGM and the, the situation I was at CRG also mm-hmm. Owen, you've
0: given us a tremendous amount of entertainment down through the years bit of excitement, <laughs> sometimes a little bit too much excitement from <laughs> your point of view I'm sure, thanks for your time and best of luck here with the family and in everything you do in your career going forward. Owen Trinkler, thanks for being with us on this long one on the Radio Show Limited network of channels
1: Thanks John, thanks for having me and hope you guys come back to Nashville soon